Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. I am so happy to welcome Kirsten Casey to the Morning Glory Project. Both as a poet herself and in her work with teen writers, she's found that poetry is far more than fancy and that it can be not only accessible, but essential, and that engaging young people with poetry is a gateway to other meaningful connections. She brings to her poetry both a vantage that contains a sense of wonder and awe, as well as her wry sense of humor and appreciation for the peculiar and the macabre twists of life. In 2022, Kirsten is the Poet Laureate of Nevada County, California, and California Poet in the Schools creative writing teacher and the author of Ex Vivo, Out of the Living Body, and her completed manuscript yet unpublished Instantaneous Obsolescence, in which she explores historical and literary characters struggling with social media, from which she's, I think, going to give us a little taste today. Kirsten Casey, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm so happy to have you today. Thank you, Betsy. It's my pleasure. Well, Kirsten, I'm going to ask you a strange question, which is with all of the woes of the world, with all of the, you know, political and social unrest and uh, war in Ukraine and pandemics and all of this stuff, what the hell uses poetry? Why? Why do you think poetry is important in general and, and even and specifically even when it doesn't seem when there are so many other competing priorities for attention? Yeah. Why care, right? Why care? I mean, that's a question that we all ask when we're faced with so much calamity and disaster. And because you have to, because you, for me, I have to, it's not only therapeutic, but connective. So in writing anything creative, um, I think we're driven to get it out and the getting it out brings us together. If, you know, something that I create can connect with only one person. I feel like I've done something magical. Well, what do you mean by connect to? Well, I think with poetry, as with fiction, but poetry in a more immediate sense, the whole purpose of it is to recreate some kind of emotion for the reader that helps them relate back to it. So the biggest gift of a poem is writing something that someone reads and they say, oh, I know exactly how that feels, or I have a similar memory. And it goes across language barriers. I mean, you can read translations of wonderful poems, and it's all the same emotion in there. Hmm. And so it just reminds us that we are all feeling the same things at the same time. Hmm. I haven't thought of it quite that way before. I, I've thought of, because I'm not a, I don't write poetry so, except to dabble, but I, I don't consider myself a poet. But as a as a writer of memoir and fiction and essays and those kinds of things, I I often think of 
creative expression as a way of building empathy bridges between each other and, and somehow connecting that way. You're saying it differently, but then of course you're a poet. And, and I often think that when I read a poem and, and somebody skilled with that economy of words has, has so skillfully put them together, I often feel like not only do I maybe empathize with the emotion, but I get sometimes an, Ooh, I hadn't quite looked at it that way before mm-hmm. feeling. Do, do you experience that when you read and when you, when you write? Definitely. I mean, that's a part of it. A part of it is the originality. And I just taught my first class yesterday to my third through eighth graders. And um, one of the first things I talk about is cliche. And I think that in poetry, our biggest challenge is to constantly be fresh, mm-hmm. to constantly try and look at things a new way. And sometimes it's really hard. I'll go to write about the night sky and think, how can I write about the night sky again and come up with something different? How can I write about love? <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a game too. It's a mental game for me when I'm writing, when I have something particular in mind, hmm. how it's going to turn out. I never quite know how it's going to turn out until I start writing it. And that's really fun. Well, tell me a little bit about how you start to write a poem. Okay. I, I have my journal here Okay, and this is my, my most recent journal. And I just want to share this with you, Betsy, because this is the first page and it has 20 post-its on it. So a lot of times that's how it starts for me with a phrase or an idea. Um, I also have a notes app on my phone where if I'm walking my dog, and think of a line, I'll jot it down. And sometimes I go back and think, what was I thinking? I don't know what this is about. But um, it usually comes from a phrase or an article that I've read or a word or a picture. It can be anything that triggers it. And then it just starts stewing. And I'll think about it for a long time before I write. It's very rarely that I sit down and write something without having thought about it for a while. Mm. So often it's done when I write it very close to being done when I write it, but I don't know that until I sit down. Well, let let me, let me, if I, if I can be so bold as to, to change your word, dare I, you say it's almost done when I write it. I I think you mean, I think you mean when you actually write it down, write it, write the poem, but you've been writing it (laughs) for a very long time. Yes. I've been writing it for a long time. But it is a strange process. It's hard to explain to anyone who doesn't write poetry, the process itself and the editing. It's very different. I've had to write several poems that have been commissioned. And that's a very different process for me than something that I'm writing for myself. Hmm. So they give you a topic or there's a specific event? As Poet Laureate, I've had to, I had to write a poem for the opening of the county fair, which which had been closed because of COVID. And... I had to write, well, I didn't have to, I, I wanted to write a poem for the reopening of the Bridgeport Bridge, of mm. a historic long covered bridge that's in our county. And I got to be at the opening ceremonies. I wrote a poem for the Ladies Relief Society for their uh, donation day parade. And because those are particular groups of people, and I know they're going to be my audience, I I knew those poems had to appeal to them and also be accurate. I love writing historical things. So I really researched the heck out of all of those things. I knew so much about bridges by the end of the bridge <laughs> poem. 
Because for me, I the first thing I have to do is find a way in. Tell me what you mean by find a way in. So how how am I going to start it? I the the poem for the ladies' relief, which is a lovely group of women that do this donation day parade before Christmas every year, where everyone brings canned goods and they parade down the main street. It's a very sweet hometown kind of a thing. Um, and every article I read started with the history of it and talking about this invalid woman in a window watching kids walk home from school and. Um, she thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if each child could bring something to help another family? And that was the only story over and over and over. And I thought, I can't start with that. It's really cool, but I can't start with that. Because it's been done? It had been done. And there was so much more behind it. Uh, in reading newspaper articles, I went to the Historical Society and read a lot about it. And so I thought, well, what if I started with a child? Instead, if I started with a child carrying the potato, I mean, that's really where I started and it's cold and her hands are red and that's where I started it. And it took me several times to get to that place. And then once I had her in my mind, I could envision the rest of the parade and the history, how to work the history in. But it's challenging. It's challenging when you're commissioned to do something. It's a lot different. I I was really struck by that when I watched President Biden's inauguration, of course, and watched Amanda Gorman do an inaugural poem. And I thought, oh my gosh, how must she have fretted? How much she must she have thought about and worked and researched and not only for the the writing of it, but for the delivery of it as well in front of one of the world's biggest audiences. And, and though your venues are and events are smaller than that, I can imagine what it's like to feel like you have to have something custom made. And so it sounds like you write in two ways. One is for when there's an audience specific mm-hmm. and one you say you write for yourself. Is Am I capturing that right? Uh, I mean, it's funny. And there was just a quote on Twitter that said, hey, it was really funny. It said something like, hey, audience, I don't know who the you is in my poems either. Hmm. You know, I don't know who it is. When I'm sitting down to write a poem, I'm really not writing that poem for a particular audience. I'm just writing to get it out and seeing what it's about. I don't know who the you is in my poem either. I, I just loved that because it's something that I've dealt with at readings when people say, oh, I had the same experience you did. And when I teach, I remind everyone the voice in the poem is not necessarily autobiographical. It's often fictional. So the authenticity comes in the truth of what you're saying, the emotions that you've had that you can express through this voice. But very, very rarely is it autobiographical when I'm writing. Tell me about that distinction more because I, I would I didn't grow up in a in a household that celebrated poetry or even literature for that matter. And mm-hmm. so I, it was something I had to discover on my own. And I think that when I first start, when I first started reading poetry, it felt like something lofty and that you had to have come from the kind of family that sits around at the table and talks about Proust, you know, to understand. Not your family. Oh, either. No. Well, so, so see, even my fiction about it is false. So I found some poetry so inaccessible and so distant. And what I've been touched by, by your poetry, as well as, you know, much now that I've learned to embrace, is how personal it seems and how accessible it seems and how intimate it is. But 
I'm hearing you also say it's seldom autobiographical. So that sounds a little like what I experience as a fiction writer, that I'm writing a story that has essential truth in it, though the circumstances have nothing to do with my own life. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're saying? Is there a similar thing there? Yeah, I think, I think good writing is authentic writing and to be an authentic writer, you're, you're looking for the avenue that expresses what you're trying to relay, whether it's, you know, um, what, one of my characters, one of my historical characters that I'm representing through one of my poems that I don't really know how they talked. I don't really know their mindset, but I, I have an idea of what their emotion might have been hmm. knowing enough about who they were, but it's, you know, wildly fictional when I'm pretending to be Mark Twain. Right. Not unlike a historical fiction writer who, yeah. who might be writing. Yeah. it's And that's fun for me. Oh, good. Well, this sounds like a good moment then. Would you be willing to share one of the your poems from Instantaneous Obsolescence? Yeah. So you, what you've done is you've plucked historical figures mm-hmm. and subjected them to social media. Mm-hmm. in one way or another, correct? And this is, I have. Th- this is their voice telling us their experience. Is that some of them it? are their voice? Some of them are observational watching them. And one of the fun things that I play in my head is constantly trying to pair up somebody from history with something in social media. Mm. Um, I have Emily Dickinson is on Bumble trying the dating app <laughs> that is female based. Um, Mark Twain, uh, reads his work on a Kindle instead of a book. And that's particularly interesting because he was a typesetter. Right. Um, I've got Jesus responding to haters on YouTube. (laughs) I have um, Socrates who will not use the hashtag. And he also historically hated the written word. He believed everything had to be orally related. So um, the Socratic method, right? The Socratic method, which is really <laughs> fun for a writer to think, oh, he didn't like words on paper. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really fun. There's a there's a fight between F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife on Facebook, very public fight. Um, I have so much fun doing it. And they f- sometimes they feel like um, a dramatic monologue and sometimes they're, you know, relaying it back <laughs> to just being watched. So, well, is there one you'd be willing to share? I'm going to read my Anne Frank poem. Okay. So this is, um, grew out of the idea of, of, we were talking before we came on the air about social media and how, uh, devastating it is for teens. And I thought, well, God, what if Anne Frank had an iPhone while she was in hiding? And I really thought about, um, at the, particularly at the time I wrote this, Snapchat was the biggest social media app. Now it's TikTok. And I, I think I have a Laura Ingalls Wilder one brewing for TikTok. But <laughs> this is Anne Frank is Undone by Snapchat. Anne, sequestered adolescent, fixated on a sense of self the unknowing world waits for, has spent the better part of this windy October afternoon taking selfies in the corner of the attic. It smells like potatoes boiling, like coffee grounds, like old wood and despair. The lighting is not right. The filters do not flatter her long face, her unwashed hair, her dark eyes, 
in the way that she desires. Behind her, the torn pages of movie star magazine faces where the pink skin, glossy and unblemished, taunts her, clouds her own early teen perceptions, here so much more isolated, where circumstance allows too many awkward hours in front of a mirror. This tiny screen also mocks her, denies the ideal beauty beyond her comprehension. She pauses on a filter that fills her eyes with enormous tears, and then the attic floods with cartoon drops pouring out into the streets of Amsterdam, drowning the soldiers patrolling the streets. The canals overflow. She swipes and swipes this tiny pane of cracked glass until the battery dies. Which photo should she have sent to Peter? So relentlessly preoccupied with playing Fortnite, wearing earphones, rarely looking her way. Her diary lies locked on her lap. Suddenly, her emptiness feels historical. Her only longing, silence. Mm. So, I mean, the idea to me, I think of how much isn't happening because of social media, how much in our world is shut off because of the addiction to the to the rush of constant news, constant texts, constant photos, and the comparison that's going on. I think it's, um, we got to have some kind of rebound, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I see some young people really just shucking the whole thing. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> as, and years ago, in training as a therapist, one of my mentors said, when you have a, a client who's kind of going on and on and on about the same thing, they're, they're really stuck and can't move, mm-hmm. that she found a really useful question that she said, what would we be talking about if we weren't talking about this? That's great. And and I've thought about that, that as social media, it's like, what would I be doing if I wasn't doing this? I love that. And I, I wonder how how much we're missing out on because time is being spent in that way. Well, so here, the example that you gave then is this truth that you're experiencing in the modern world by looking back at it in the context of Anne Frank uh, and her context. I just love that, that you do that, Kirsten. It's it's what you bring to the page. So let, let me ask you this then, because as I ask every guest, I always ask, you know, how do you get through what you get through? And not just on an emotional level, but but also on a practical level. Poetry isn't something that people pay for, typically. No. I mean, I'm sure that uh, you have fashioned uh, income out of teaching and other other things, but nobody's getting rich. Or, I don't know. There might be three people on the planet getting rich from writing poetry, but not very many. <laughs> and I can think of three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that and and a couple of them are no longer with us. So um so it's not for profit, it's not typically for fame or recognition or those kinds of things. It's so what keeps you doing something that has so little recognition reward from the external? I there's a lot of reasons. I'm I'm I've been working with kids for a very long time. My first junior high students are 45 years old. 
there was a big gap in there. But uh, I love working with kids. And I also love working with adults, getting them turned on to poetry. If I do nothing else, they'll walk away knowing a poem does not have to rhyme. Mm. They'll walk away knowing what and what is not cliche. And a little more appreciation for a great simile or um, a stunning word. And I do it because I have to, I have to get it out. And it's just, it's, it's like having these characters in your head or these words in your head. And if you don't get them out, they just keep turning in there. And it's so fun. I mean, if there was no joy in it, I wouldn't be doing it. It's fun to share. It's fun to create and it's fun to connect. It's fun to be with people. I've been doing a, poetry happy hour as poet laureate and we just about three sessions ago we started to do it in the national exchange bar in an actual happy hour setting and it's been delightful i've had a great turnout and i'm trying to demystify that idea that you talked about that poetry is lofty and and it's to be dissected not enjoyed i think the problem in schools is much of the time the children are given a historical poem that isn't great. And then they're told to pull out the vocabulary words, analyze it, use the words in a sentence. And it's not a good experience of poetry. I like to have them listen. When I'm in the classroom, I have them close their eyes and just listen to the words in the poem and, and not to tear it apart, just to listen to how the words go together. And anytime a kid says, I don't like poetry. I just always say you haven't read the right poem yet. Hmm. So it's, it's with anything else, the more you read, the more you're exposed to the good. The only great thing about social media is the accessibility to so many great poets. There is a stunning number of exceptional poetry out there every day. I'm just, my mind is blown. I follow new poets every day. Well, so do you look them up? Because I wouldn't know which ones to look up. Is there a, a warehouse of sorts online that you can think of or or any resource or any specific recommendations of people that you think it'd be great to listen to? For websites, poets.org is a great one. Poetry Foundation is another. My favorite, favorite source is the Writer's Almanac. And you can subscribe to that. And they send you a poem every day. And they also send you a little this day in history of people and events, which I love so much. Hmm. As far as podcasts go, the slowdown, um, Ada Limon is the host right now. And she was just appointed poet laureate of the United States. So let, let me pause you for a second, if I may, can you explain, because I'm going to tell you the first time I ever, it was many years ago now, but the first time I ever heard poet laureate, I had no idea what that meant. Nobody does. Can, and I know that some counties had poet laureate and then there's a national poet laureate. There's a state poet laureate. Yep. Can you tell me what that means and what that is? The poet laureate has a worldwide history starting in Greece. It's an ancient position. It started with a person appointed to record events and to speak at inaugurations or festivals. And most of their stuff was commissioned. They were told what to write. Mm. You know, the UK has a long standing tradition of poet laureate, very similar 
uh, someone who's chosen to represent the UK and writing things about the nation, things about the country, things about the leadership. And they used to be paid in a cask of wine, <laughs> which I love. They would get this giant barrel of wine delivered to their house. That, that, that brings up the tortured alcoholic poet. Exactly. As <laughs> They're trying to feed that. Speaking of cliches. So the, the levels for our United States, there's a National Poet Laureate and then there's state and county. We also have a Youth Poet Laureate for the United States and Youth Poet Laureates for the states and Youth Poet Laureates for counties. And that's a newer program, which is really cool. Um, Amanda Gorman was a former Youth Poet Laureate for the United States before she read at Biden's inauguration. And she is a stellar, great person to be representing what's happening in poetry right now. You know, I've also wondered if and I'm, I'm sure you've got some insight into this, but I've wondered if the the emergence of rap as a genre has made poetry a more accessible things to more diverse audiences too, and to and to young people. I know that my son, who would never say he loves poetry, loves listening to rap, <laughs> and so I, you know, he he looked at me askance when I said, "Well, that's sort of poetry, son. You know, you are listening to poetry. You're just listening to it." spoken to a musical beat and he said well so you're convincing me now that i love poetry okay <laughs> he surrendered well rap does sound stand for rhythm and poetry that's what rap means hmm. so i i do believe that hip-hop and rap have contributed to the interest especially in um slam poetry poetry that's performative that really is based on rhythm and rhyme hmm. Um, that style of poetry is really attractive to kids. I have judged for years and years Poetry Out Loud, which is a recitation contest. Uh, it's nationwide where kids select a poem from a list and they have to recite it from memory, but they also have to follow certain protocol. It can't be overly dramatic. It can't be saccharine. They, can't, they have to have a presence on stage. So they're not being actors, so much as they're not being actors. There was, it, there's a real difference between reciting and acting. And it is so stellar to watch how they transform the poem and their own presence when they're reading. Um, and if any of you out there have never seen it, go to the poetry out loud website and watch the last year's winner. It's so fun. Well, I'm going to give a testimony to that because I attended a live poetry out loud session in which our mutual friend, Julie Valin was one of the coaches who had coached one of the participants. And it was amazing. And and I have to say too, again, back to my background of not having a background where I experienced poetry in the classic sense or anything, or even literature for that matter. I find it far easier to listen to poetry than to read it. The, the fascinating thing about, um, I mean, I talk to kids all the time about the difference between poetry and music, about the added level of melody and how a song is really designed to be a lyric and a melody, but a poem is designed to be read or recited. So for me, it really does bring it to life when you hear it read. Some poems don't, for me, I mean, I prefer listening to live poetry, but in reading poetry, it's amazing how effective some of them are just on the page. And when you look at a poem on the page, 
one of the things that people don't realize is that the end word of each line has a real role in the overall part of the effectiveness of a poem. It's not just arbitrarily broken, <laughs> those it's lines. Not. Well, that's what really fascinates me. Again, I often tease and say that it takes me 350 pages to do what you do in a page. <laughs> and that I'm my hat is off to poets who are so judicious and thoughtful about not only every word, but every syllable and every line break and the shape of the poem on the page, if the visual is part of it, which it sometimes is, and the sound, the rhythm and the sound and all of the things that, that inform my own writing as a prose writer, but are so much more amplified to you as poets. Kirsten, I'm so excited to have you today and so thrilled to welcome this conversation about the value of this, that at a time when it doesn't generate money or produce energy or <laughs> solve the world's problems in obvious ways that poetry builds connection between us, what I like to call empathy bridges. And I'm so grateful to know you and to know your work. I will strongly recommend people find, where would they find Ex Vivo? It's not so easy to find, I would imagine. But you can order it through your local bookstore, I prefer, that you went to. Oh, great. Okay. Yes, because it was published by Hip Pocket Press. So, so yes, we always encourage people to, to go to their local indie bookstores and order, but Ex Vivo, Out of the Living Body, poems by Kirsten Casey, and I'll hope very much that your new book finds a publisher because I'm going to want to read all of those poems about historical figures interacting with the modern world. <laughs> Thank you for being part of the Morning Glory Project. This is a delight. Thank you so much, Betsy. As I think about the extra blooms from my conversation with Kirsten Casey, I think about the value of art in general the value of visual arts, of dance, of music, of poetry, of literature, of all of those things. And I think that we tend, particularly in the U.S., we tend to measure the value of things by how much money they earn <laughs> and not by their intrinsic value. And I was struck by when Kirsten talked about how she writes because she must she writes for her own sake of expression, but then the additional reason is for connection, for connectivity, to build those bridges between each other, to find understanding, to help people to find themselves in the words. And I wonder if you could put a monetary value on that, if we were able to somehow connect the world, connect different people with different ways of thinking to each other, if I could speak to somebody whose opinion is wildly different from my own, but we could find that empathy bridge to one another, could we have a deeper understanding? Could we find more common ground? Golly, is poetry the way to world peace? <laughs> is art the way to world peace? Is music? I often wonder about that. And, you know, the answer to me is, I know I'm going to sound like a dreamer, but I think the answer is yes. I think that when we connect to our most essential truth, our most essential emotions, that that's when we have the deepest hope. 
of finding connection to one another. And that is not a bad extra bloom. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I so appreciate the gift of your time and your attention. I hope that you find a way to connect to others through art, through music, through poetry, and that that helps you to bloom. <laughs>